0: we mm-hmm. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 7 of X-Labs the Nation. Uh, this is actually the penultimate episode of X-Labs the Nation. We're through with the Extermination miniseries, and we're just doing a little bit of a cleanup right now. We got an epilogue today, which... Uh, well, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. It's not going to really set anybody uh, anybody's toes on fire, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. In fact, this is an X-Men story so vital and important that, uh, believe it or not, it got a Fantastic Four Villains variant cover. Can we stop with this crap, please? Can we? Do we need... Does anyone out there need the Fantastic Four Villains variant for the Cable eulogy issue? I mean, come on. Could you imagine, like, a funeral for a friend? You know, Superman died. I mean, Superman and Cable are two different characters, of course, but... Can you imagine if they did like a, here's a Challenges of the Unknown variant for uh, the first issue where, where Superman's dead. It's like, come on, dude, we, we gotta stop with this crap. This is just stupid. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to our uh, wildly, um, well, let's just get to the story here. This is X-Men, The Exterminated number 1, had a February 2019 cover date. We've got two stories here, and we're going to handle them. One at a time. The first one is a Hope Summers and Jean Grey story. Written by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler. With art by Neil Edwards. Colors, J. David Ramos. Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino. Edits, Danny Kazem, Darren Shan, Jordan D. White, and C.D. Sobalski. Cover price, $4.99, so a $5 book. This one went on sale December 5th of 2018, so uh, if you're paying very close attention to release dates here, you'll know that this came out a few weeks before Extermination No. 5. So uh, the epilogue came before the final issue here. Um, not that it really... Well, you know what? I take that back. It actually does sort of kind of spoil something here. Uh, like I mentioned, this is the Cable ep- uh, eulogy issue. So uh, it kind of does spoil that Cable stays dead uh during, you know after the events of extermination so he does not come back in the final issue um he is replaced by the younger version so i guess i guess technically that would be a spoiler here um so let's get into this here this is the hope and Gene story here and we open with hope summers leading a team of young x-men through a battle against apocalypse her team includes Anol, Nature Girl, Glob Herman, Armor, Surge, and whatever the hell a is, or a I don't know. Naturally, these kids aren't actually facing off against Apocalypse, this is just a danger room simulation. It gets several pages nonetheless in order to show us that Hope is uh, attempting to follow in the footsteps of her fallen foster father, Cable. And uh, it does offer Glob Herman the opportunity to yell, It's Globerin time, which I kind of like. We later join her sitting up against a tree with her thoughts. She's approached by Bishop, and I tell you what, this is a scene I was actually looking forward to seeing play out. Now, if you have any familiarity with Hope and her origins, you'll know that the entire second volume of Cable was predicated on on Cable himself raising Hope and leaping through time in order to evade Bishop. Now, Bishop kind of lost his mind at the end of... I want to say Second Coming. Uh, It might have been... No, I don't think it was Messiah Complex. I think it was Second Coming. Whichever one introduced Hope as, you know, the first mutant back uh, post-House of M. Now, he, Bishop, saw Hope as a heretical figure who needed to die. And so he tried killing her for an entire 25-issue volume of Cable. And here, we've got them on panel together, perhaps for the first time as... Uneasy allies? I don't know. And boy, they whiff it pretty bad here. Um, Bishop tries telling Hope that he and Cable aren't all that different. And also that Nathan would be proud of her. She blows him off. Jean Grey approaches, who also blows Bishop off. And scene. That's it. That's really it. I, I guess that was worth looking forward to. I really, really expected more, considering the... The, just the twisted history these characters had together But, uh, felt like it was just getting lip service Like they felt like they had to include it And really just uh, left, left a lot of it on the table here Now the rest of our story here, as the title implies, is focused on Jean and Hope Now their greeting here is fairly contentious and awkward uh, Hope is still reeling from the loss of Cable, of course Jean reminds her that Cable was her sorta-kinda son Hope attempts to excuse herself in order to clear out Cable's old safe houses, and Jean insists that they do this together. Hope still wants to do it alone, but eventually comes around to Jean's idea. It's worth noting, Hope shields herself from Jean's telepathy during this scene, uh, which makes me think that she probably had a bad run-in with young Jean at some point, because young Jean was uh, a little fast and loose with the, uh, the morality of uh, invading minds here, where older Jean... While she knows that Hope is blocking her, doesn't outright go into her mind, at least uh, as far as we know. Now we jump to Cable's safe house number one, which is located in Hell's Kitchen. Ho- Jean and Hope are shocked to find that someone has beaten them to the punch, and it's Deadpool. And so they fight for a little bit, and Hope assumes that Wade is here to just steal all of Cable's doodads and whatnots. Well, we actually find out that uh, he stole Cable's body eventually, and he made it into a pool table. But that's a discussion that we've already had in episode—I don't know, one of the 90s—the <laughs> issue, uh, the issue of Cable, where uh, where he needs the the time machine in Cable's, ar- in older Cable's arm. Now, Deadpool assures the ladies that he would never do this. He would never steal from his pal. He reminds them that, at least in the most recent years, he's probably been Cable's closest and bestest friend. And as such, they had a death pact. Now, if either of them were to perish, the other would, uh, you know, quote-unquote, clear their browser history, so to speak. So, he was just doing the unfortunate cleanup that comes with losing a friend. He does admit that he would taking one thing back with him, and that's a portable coffee mug that uh, keeps coffee hot even in the Age of Apocalypse, which is kind of cute. Now, as he goes to leave, he whispers into Hope's ear that, uh, you know, he knows why she's really here, and uh, he tells her that she won't find what she's looking for. He then tells the gals that the place is wired to blow, suggesting that they, uh, you know, skidoo pretty quick. Next stop, Safe House number 9, located in the Adirondack Mountains. Here we get a sight gag of Hope wearing some of Cable's Liefeldian shoulder pads, and it's kind of cute. Uh, a nice little commentary on costuming, because she's like, I-, I can't believe he ever wore this stuff, and Jean's like, it's like, well, just wait ten years and see what you were wearing now and see how that holds up. So, without being too dismissive of, you know, LOL 90s, it, it's nice to see that they just mentioned that, you know, styles and fashions change I, I like that, it's uh, respectful of uh, of the material From here we go to safe house number 12 Located on Muir Island And here, Hope discovers that Cable had a safe house That she didn't even know existed One located in Cooperstown, Alaska Now this is safe house number 13 And it's right where the X-Men discovered Hope During, you know, Second Coming or Messiah... Con- I think it was Second Coming Um... It's at this safe house where Hope finally founds what it is that she's been looking for. And if you guessed that it was a time machine, because, well, of course it is, uh, you'd be right. Now, Jean's all, no, 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 because, I mean, didn't we just tie up some time travel shenanigans with the original five? Do we really want to open that kettle of fish again? Probably not. Anyway, Hope and Jean fight a little bit. And it's basically just Hope lashing out, dealing with her grief here. Uh, She finally collapses, knowing that Jean is right. And so she destroys the time machine. That's kind of extreme. I mean, maybe don't destroy the thing, just maybe don't use it. Oh well. Now, something I've neglected to mention uh, throughout this story is the fact that Hope keeps bringing up how, try as she might, she can't even picture Cable's face anymore. Feels a little bit far-fetched And definitely like a call-ahead To what will be our very predictable ending But I gotta mention it Since it is how we wrap up the story Gene gives Hope a telepathic vision of Cable So, that's that That is the end of the Hope and Gene story Our backup is a Cyclops and Corsair story Written by Chris Claremont, with art by Ramon Rezanis. colors Nolan Wooded, and let his VCs Joe Sabino edits, same folks. Now this one, this one's pretty weird. Um, Now it's full of uh, Summer's family stuff, and it's being narrated by Cable, who can apparently remember every single thing that happened ever in his life. He's only an infant in this story, but he can recall every detail of what happened during it. I'm not sure if this is a power that Cable has that I'd forgotten about. Or maybe Cable's been journaling or dictating into an AI dictionary since the day he was born. I don't know. Whatever the case, let's get to it. We see Madeline Pryor holding baby Nathan. She's surrounded by Havoc, Polaris, Corsair, Corsair's parents, and a very aloof and distant-looking Scott Summers. It's worth noting that we're told here that Nathan, baby Nathan, was named after his great-grandfather, which... Isn't the case at all His great-grandfather's name is Philip Now, it was revealed during Inferno That Nathan was chosen The name Nathan was chosen by Maddie Due to that being the same name Of a boy who bullied Scott in the orphanage His name was Nathan as well Also, I mean, eventually Her own creator, Mr. Sinister is, Is a Nathan as well So, Claremont, come on Come on, buddy Now, everyone in the family sees that Scott's acting strange, but everyone is afraid to confront him over it. Corsair is eventually chatted up by his father, not Nathan, but Philip, and is told that he'd best talk to his boy. And so, we shoot over to Scott and Maddie's Alaskan chalet, and we see that things aren't so swell in the summer house. Maddie and the baby are sleeping in bed. Scott has taken up uh, slumbering on the couch. So we've definitely got some marital strife here. No pun intended. Early that morning, Chris gets up and invites Scott to go on a walk with him. Scott ain't feeling it, but uh, Chris is insistent, and so Scott does what his father says. While walking, we get the quick and dirty on Scott's origin. Now, if you remember, he was uh, chucked out of a plane with only his little brother in a burning parachute to uh, slow his fall. He manifested his mutant power on the descent, saving both of their lives. He wound up in a coma for a year, and he woke up with a sort of a Swiss cheese memory. Then he was dropped into the home for foundlings. He knew that he had a brother, but his brother had already been adopted. Scott was all by his lonesome. Now, Scott asks his father why he tossed him out of the ship, which is a dumb question, but it facilitates the quick and dirty on Corsair's own origin. You see, the Shi'ar captured him, killed his wife, enslaved him, and then Starjammers. Scott admits that he's scared of having the responsibility of a family. Well, hold that thought, Scott, because suddenly there's an earthquake. Hepzibah holograms in to let them know that Maddie and the baby are currently in a bad way. The Summers men rush up the hill to see that Madeline has been pinned under a fallen tree. She cries out for help, not for herself, though, just for her baby, who she is still clutching onto. Without thinking, Scott leaps across the divide in the land, and it's... Almost like we're suddenly on the edge of a cliff or something. I don't know what the topography of this area is, but it's very, very bizarre. Whatever the case, Scott somehow cracks his head open in the process. He attempts to save his wife and child, but only manages to shake the ground under them loose to the point where they both they all fall from the cliffside. So, Scott does the same thing he did when he and little Alex were falling out of the plane, and he uses his optic blast to slow their fall. They land safely, and everything's hunky-dory. We wrap up back at the chalet. Maddie's leg is all bandaged up, but she, Scott, and Nathan are all in the family bed together. Cable is still narrating, and he mentions that this is when he knew that Scott would be a great husband and father. So I guess Cable never read X-Factor number one then. Well, that's where we leave it. That is the end of X-Men colon the Exterminated. Next episode, we wrap up the X-Lapse the Nation series with more Cyclops in Uncanny X-Men Annual number one. And that is, of course, the most recent Uncanny X-Men Annual since there have been like a half dozen of them in the past ten years. So the latest one, the Ed Brisson one, the one that was associated with Uncanny X-Men Volume 5, <laughs> the one right before Hawksbox. that one but that's next week. Let's talk about this week and well, this was uh this was not great. This was really uh not not all well that great here. I uh, felt it felt like the classic Marvel cash in epilog, right? I mean, it's almost like they ran out of pages during extermination and they had maybe two or three pages of story they still wanted to tell, but you can't sell two or three pages of story, so you have to blow it up into well, in this case, a uh, extra-sized $5 uh, one-shot. So we get the Hope and Gene story, which certainly didn't feel like it needed the amount of pages it got, and really didn't feel like it did a whole lot, besides facilitate that final panel where Hope and Gene are walking towards the horizon and there's a big vision of Cable, uh, you know, in the sky. Uh, that seemed to be it. You could have just done that as a as a one-off panel. But, uh, no, we needed the story here. Um... I mean, it wasn't a bad story. It just didn't feel necessary. I mean, I know characters like Cable kind of get a bad rap, you know, for being uh, kind of uh, informative of an era that we all claim to be a little too smart for nowadays. But, I mean, let's be real here. Cable has been a character for 30 years. You know, when Cable showed up, the X-Men were, like, just only 30 years old. So he's been around a damn long time. I think he deserved a, uh, maybe something a little bit better than, than this sort of melancholy, passive sort of uh, eulogy. I, I, I get why they would use Hope, and I certainly get why they would use Gene, because they're both like sorta, kinda Cable's family, but not exactly, right? Gene is sorta Cable's mom, and Hope is sorta Cable's daughter. So they do have uh, sort of parallels, I guess, in their relationship with uh, Nathan. But I think I would have, I would have liked to see some X Force in here. I would have liked to see Domino. How does Domino react to this? How, do, how does you know Boom Boom and Cannonball? How do they react to this? This whole thing just felt very half-hearted. Um, didn't stick. The landing and certainly didn't live up to uh, The five issues that came before it The extermination series was Was really really good in my opinion Where this I don't want to say it felt phoned in But it felt like Well we have to deal with this so how do we deal with it Without on the Boat uh, you know, as, With on the Boat as little as possible Because maybe they didn't know Where they were going from there I, I really don't know Just felt half hearted You're Speaking of half hearted The Bishop and Hope uh, scene uh, early in the story felt just like such a missed opportunity. I, I gotta admit that I was on hiatus, so I don't know if Hope and Bishop had crossed paths before this in any sort of meaningful way. I don't know if they had it out. I don't know if Hope ran up to him and beated him on the ch- you know beat him on the chest and and cursed him for following them through ch- chasing them through time. I don't know if that scene happened, but I think I I, I think I would have liked to see that here because we've got Hope lashing out at Gene you know, throughout this story. But when Bishop comes, it's just like, eh, it's just some guy. It, it felt and again, I was on hiatus, so this very well might have been handled somewhere else. I just feel like. I felt like it was a little too passive-aggressive considering their history. And I feel like uh, like Bishop telling her that Cable would be proud would be kind of a slap in the face. It's like, you know, dude, you wanted us both dead, so you don't get to say his name. You know, something like that. But it was just like a, yeah, beat it, you know. Just didn't really ring true to me. Um, more about Hope here. She's been kind of slotted into a into like a utility character in the current books, uh, the Hoxpox Pox books here. She's a member of the Five, of course. She's, uh, you know, in large part responsible for the resurrection protocols being a thing that happens here. Has she crossed paths with Kid Cable? That's something I wonder. Uh, and again, I was on hiatus, so I don't know if they had a scene where they had it out. But it seems weird that she would uh, just... Be totally cool living on the same island as the guy who killed her father. And again, this might have been settled, but I just don't know it. So we'll uh, we'll work on that as we as we go along here. I appreciated the Deadpool uh, moment. I like the idea of him and Cable having this pact where, you know, if one of them were to go, the other one is on damage control. The other one is taking care of business and, and kind of wiping the slate clean. So. Any secrets don't get, you know, don't get out. Loved ones don't get attacked. It's it's smart, uh, and it's definitely something I could see them doing, even though, you know, they didn't always see eye to eye. they I think they did see value in each other, and they did have a measure of trust in one another. Uh, Wade himself mentions that Cable has provided that service for him multiple times already in times that Wade was thought to be dead. So I like that. I do like the Cable and Deadpool friendship. I, I think that's... Uh, that's one of the uh, maybe more underrated uh, bits of uh, of mid-2000s x-men comics that uh, that weird cable and Deadpool series uh, that Fabian Niciasa did it was a lot of fun and uh, it was awkward but I think that kind of fed into the fun I really really dug that and I feel like that was a really good use of characters that were kind of on the outs at that point it was just like... There wasn't much of an appetite for Cable And and Deadpool At this point, Deadpool couldn't carry an ongoing So I, I think that was a nice use for both of them Keeping them both kinda Bebopping around and, uh, and doing it in a very uh, Novel and fun way I suppose we could talk about the prospect Of Hope traveling through time To To save Cable um, I think with that It's, oh no pun intended, it's all about timing Right, I mean, we just sent back the original five, so we know what mucking around with the time stream can do. So I think this was a really opportune time to uh, present Hope with that sort of uh, quandary, where you know, do you do it? And if you do that, what else might happen? And Gene trying to explain that to Hope as Hope is just... You know, she's going through the kubler Ross thing here. She's just she's bargaining. She's in denial. She's trying to find ways to get out of her grief, right? Instead of processing it, she wants to just, you know, put a cork on it and make everything better again. And that's all she sees. All she sees is she wants her, you know, her foster father back. She doesn't know what sort of Pandora's box she might be opening in the process because she's just not there yet. You know, she her mind is wrapped up in the gratification and the satisfaction and the comfort of making things the way they were before Kid Cable came and uh, and took everything away. So I like that. I like that here. So this wasn't a bad story. The story, uh, for the most part, the art was good. Um, There were some weird faces, especially toward the end, but uh, not a bad story. Just. Certainly, a little bit of a letdown compared to the rest of the extermination series, and as a as kind of tying a bow on old man Cable, at least for the for the for the media, the immediate future, kind of a letdown. Kind of a letdown. Uh, let's hop over to the second story here, the Cyclops and Corsair story, which I really don't even know what to say about it because. I can't place the story. I can't place it. And one of the things that I really, really appreciated about the Extermination series was uh, in the first issue, Ed Brisson wrote a little bit at the end, and he said, he's like, hey guys, your back issues matter. Your back issues matter here. This, This story is going to respect that and appreciate that. And everything is going to make sense. Here, we've got a weird scene where, with Cable uh, with, uh, with, Cy- uh, with Scott and Madeline Where I just can't place it And it was a little saccharine A little syrupy It was actually very syrupy I really just don't understand I don't understand why this was needed um, I feel like You know Cyclops has kind of uh, Become Identified by the fact that he left his family in X Factor uh, in the in the early issues of X Factor back in the '80s, which it's kind of like the uh, the old sitcom thing, you know. It's you think about a sitcom where, and I and I've used this this uh, example before, where one of the characters is portrayed as being a neat freak in the first couple seasons, but then in the fifth and sixth season, all they all they're doing is running around with a dustbuster. You know, they've taken any kind of subtlety out of it, and they just become the caricature. In comics, we've got characters like, over at DC, we got Roy Harper, Speedy. What are some facts about Speedy? What are some facts about Speedy? Oh yeah, he's addicted to heroin. He's a junkie. That's become his defining characteristic. Let's think about Hank Pym. What do we got about Hank Pym? Oh, he beat his wife. Okay, so every story has to be about Hank Pym having beaten his wife. Cyclops, it's a little bit more subtle. It's a little less one-to-one, but it's like when you think about Cyclops, and if you're knowledgeable about Cyclopsian history, it's like, oh yeah, he abandoned his family. I feel like there's been an effort to kind of change the narrative on that a little bit. I think with retcons and retroactive continuity... And the fact that we've made it so Madeline is less of an innocent victim in the uh in the abandonment, it feels like an orchestrated way to make it seem like, hey, Cyclops ain't that bad a dude. And I mean Cyclops is my favorite character. But still, I you know, I understand that he's flawed. I understand that he made bad decisions. I understand that he acted on emotion and perhaps libido on, on several occasions, rather than rationality and responsibility. But I feel like there's just this concentrated effort to assuage him of that guilt, which I, it feels untrue to the character. Here, I mean, we have we have Cable as a baby, talking up what a great father and a great husband Cyclops is and and always will be, and that's just not true, right? I mean, and we can talk until we're blue in the face about the specifics of him leaving. You know, of him leaving uh, Madeline and Nathan back in X-Factor number one. Did he know that Gene was alive? We don't know. We don't know. All we know is that Warren said, hey, get over here. You know Warren called him, and and Scott Scott's reply was something along the lines of "I can't believe it." Did was he told that uh, that Gene was back, or just that there were there was big news? We don't know, so we don't know why he left. I think deep down we do, but again, the there's been an effort to change that, to modify that. It's more about Scott. Um, Scott feeling beholden to the X-Men and to mutant kind rather than him running back to his formerly, you know, assumed dead girlfriend. And that makes Madeline seem maybe not so much irrational, but maybe a little unfair, right? It makes Scott more sympathetic than had he just been like, oop, my girlfriend's back, see ya, this is oh, the mutants need me, my people need me, the X-Men need me. And while there's certainly truth to that, I mean, that is part of it, for sure. Madeline was annoyed that he was always at the beck and call of the X-Men when the X-Men had a very, very solid lineup at this point. They didn't necessarily need him, and, I mean, he did just lose to Storm while she was depowered in X-Men, in Uncanny 201. So, I mean, there is definitely something to that but here i feel like we're we're kind of like protesting too much where it's just oh he's a devoted husband and a wonderful father and a... sorry claremont i'm not buying it i'm not buying it i don't know what's uh being mandated i don't know if this is supposed to cuz you got to we got to remember that at the end of extermination number 5 cyclops is back right he, the, the adult cyclops is back it, and he had just been put through the ringer here, so in addition to abandoning his family and x factor, uh, he also was a dark phoenix. He killed Professor X. he went on a revolution. he uh, well, what the people think he attacked the inhumans. he was dead. it was a it was character assassination. It was just not it was not the best time to be Cyclops or a Cyclops fan, so I don't know if this story was here as a way to maybe shine a different, shine maybe a softer light on him and make him seem a bit more relatable, make him seem more sympathetic, make him more fan friendly, uh, maybe try to shed a little bit of his emotional and um, inconvenient baggage before uh, re establishing him as a featured character. In the, in the X-Men books again After being gone for a little while Don't know what the case is I, you know, I mean What choice do I have but to accept it <laughs> Because it just is what it is But uh It really kind of rang Untrue to me A little insincere And uh The fact that it's, that it's Chris Claremont Kind of going against Things that he'd originally wrote Whether they were planned that way or not I don't know, just doesn't really jive for me And I also just don't think it was a necessary story I don't think this was a necessary story We could have gotten away with uh, with just the Hope eulogy Maybe throw an X-Force eulogy in there I just don't think we needed this story Just uh, really didn't have much of a reason to exist But those are my thoughts on the two stories in X-Men colon The Exterminated I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these stories. Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, do you feel like they, uh, they did service to the Extermination event miniseries? Or was this just another $5 cash-in from our friends at Marvel? <laughs> Please feel free to let me know. You can find me very, very easily. I'm on Twitter, at Ace Comics. Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at com. We also have xlabs to dot com. You can join the conversation at Facebook where uh, we're we're getting new members for the first time in a long time. So thank you all for uh, for signing in and uh, and hanging out with us. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And of course, you can hear over 500 episodes at the Chris and Reggie channel at com. Well, that'll do it for our penultimate episode of x Labs the Nation. Just one more to go, and we will be reintroduced to Cyclops next time. So I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time and allowing me to be part of your day. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.